What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. survey and ask the question, who is Jesus? You would receive many different answers to that question. From many people, you would receive a positive but also wrong answer. Things like, you know, they would have a view of Jesus in in a positive light. They would see him, you know, in that positive way, but it's still a, a wrong answer. Positive answers like Jesus is a prophet or Jesus was a healer. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a moral teacher. Now, there would also be people who would give you negative and wrong answers. They would say that Jesus was a liar. He was a deceiver, that he's deceived billions of people believing he was something he wasn't. They would say that Jesus was crazy. He believed that he was something that he wasn't. Now, for many mothers, you would just receive a clueless answer. They would just say, I don't have a clue who Jesus was. I have no knowledge of that. No one's ever talked to me about that. I've never really thought much about it. And so I just don't know who Jesus is. And from others, you would have a a dismissive answer. I don't care. I don't care who Jesus is. What does he have to do with my life? Why are you asking me this question? You know, get away from me and just be very dismissive. And then finally, there would be the people who would give you the correct answer, that Jesus is God, that he is the savior of the world. Now, as I mentioned many times, the main purpose of John's gospel is to reveal one specific truth, that Jesus is God and that you would believe in him and have eternal life because of it. In the first five chapters of John, we've seen most people have a positive view of Jesus, but yet it's still a wrong view of Jesus. People saw Jesus as a good man. They saw Jesus as a good teacher. Hey, someone who can meet their physical needs. You know, he, he feeds us. He heals us. Someone who would make a great king to help them overthrow Rome. And then we came to John chapter 6, where Jesus revealed that that's not who he was and not why he came. And all of a sudden, these people who have their view of the Messiah rock, their view of what they want changed, you know, wait a second, you're telling me you didn't come just to, to meet my physical needs, you didn't come, you know, to be the king to overthrow Rome. And all of a sudden, when they heard the reality of the fact that Jesus came for something far greater, to not overthrow Rome, but to conquer sin, to not deal with uh, killing uh, Israel's enemies, but to bring life to the world who's dead in sin, that they hear this stuff, they hear of you know what he can do spiritually, and it's like, you know, that's not what I want. That's not what I'm looking for. And so we end John chapter 6 with many people who were following Jesus deciding, you know what, <laughs> you're not what we hope for, you're not what we're looking for, and so we're no longer going to follow you. And now as we come to John chapter 7 this morning, there's an important shift in John's gospel. We're going to see the, an increased negative response 
to who Jesus is. Up to this point in the first five chapters, even into chapter six, there's been this positive response for the most part, except for the religious leaders. But, but many of the multitudes, you know, have had a very positive experience, looked at Jesus in a positive light. And now starting out here in John chapter seven, we're going to see this growing antagonism, this growing attack against Jesus. There's going to be a greater attempt by the religious leaders to destroy Jesus and also to destroy any belief in the fact that He is God, the fact that He is the Messiah. And John chapter 7 does a great job in helping us see this transition that's happening in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And from, from now on, we're just going to see these attacks grow against Him. They're going to increase. And the transition is really stated very clearly in the first two verses of John 7. We're told this, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not walk want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now something important to note, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, they're much more of a chronological uh, depiction of Jesus' life. And John, in his purpose of wanting just to declare Jesus as God, he doesn't kind of approach things quite uh, as much, doesn't give the same kind of details as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so from the end of John chapter 6 to the beginning of John chapter 7, you would just think reading it, oh, it's just the next day or just a few days later. But actually there's six months that has transpired from the finishing of John chapter 6 to the start of John chapter 7. If you remember, in John chapter 6, the feast of the Passover is about to happen. And now as we get to John chapter 7, the feast of tabernacles is about to happen. But the reality is those feasts are six months apart. And so we have this six-month span of time that has happened. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, they give us details as to what Jesus did in those six months, the ministries that he was doing. But John just shares a little statement here about what's transpired uh, during these six months. He just says that Jesus walked in Galilee, and he gives us the reason. Now, notice here from the map, Galilee is the uh, northern region of Israel. And so this is the area where Jesus spent the majority of his time. He did not go to the southern region of Judea where Jerusalem is and also the majority of the religious leaders who were against him were. And we're told here by John, well, why is it that Jesus spent six months up in Galilee and never came down to Judea or the mage city of Jerusalem? And the reason is because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, if you remember at the end of John chapter 6, after Jesus shares, hey, I'm not coming to be your political leader. I'm not coming to overthrow Rome. I'm not coming just to meet your physical needs. I've come to do something far more to meet your spiritual needs. A lot of people say, you know what? We're, we're done with you. We're not following you anymore. But that was the crowd. The religious leaders were told they sought to kill him. They want Jesus dead. And so for six months, Jesus stays up in the northern region. Why? Because the majority of the religious leaders, they were in the southern region. Now, Jesus doesn't do this for fear of them. Instead, as we'll see in these first few verses, he does it because it wasn't God's time for him to confront them. It wasn't God's time for this to escalate because God has a specific time for Jesus to ultimately go to the cross. God is going to allow these religious leaders to do what they desire to do and kill Jesus, but it's not going to be for another six months after this. And so God's saying, hey, my specific time isn't yet. And so Jesus, knowing that, says, I'm not going to go down into the Judea area and have more conflicts to speed up 
this process that the religious leaders desire to kill me. And so now we're going to see, starting in chapter 7, this increase. Every chapter, there's going to be more animosity, more desire from the religious leaders to take Jesus' life, and it's going to lead all the way to the point where they put him to death on the cross. Now, the first 13 verses of John chapter 7, it kind of sets the stage for this transition that's happening in Jesus' life, in Jesus' ministry. We're going to see several wrong views concerning Jesus. Wrong views from his brothers, wrong views from the religious leaders, and wrong views from the crowds that were there in Israel. And we're also going to note four main reasons that caused these people to have these wrong views. You know, what was it that drove them to conclude that Jesus was something that he wasn't? We're going to be looking at that as well. And then we're going to finish by looking at the most important thing. What's the right view? What is the right view to have of Jesus? And why is it important for us to have that right view of Jesus? Now, these verses are very applicable to each one of us who have already placed our trust in Jesus, who already know who Jesus is, because you know what? We encounter so many people on a regular basis who also have these wrong views that we're going to look at this morning. And so, you know, we can better relate to them when we understand where they're coming from and hopefully be more effective in sharing the right view of who Jesus is to them. If we're going to be effective in that, I think it's important to know that. But you know what, they're also applicable to you if you're here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is. You haven't made a decision to trust him with your life that, you know what, you're going to discover who Jesus is. You're going to learn why that's important to put your trust in him. So we're going to start with the wrong view of Jesus's brothers. Let's see what we're told in verses two through five. Now, the Jews feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret why he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So something important to note here as we come into John chapter 7, and we'll be looking at it this week and next week as well, is that the events here take place before during and after a specific feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, Jesus hasn't been down in Judea in Jerusalem for six months. The last time he was there was at the Feast of Passover. And there were three main feasts each year that, you know, Jewish men would do their best to get to, and that was Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of tabernacles. And so we have this this feast, this major feast that the Jews would uh, do their best to get to. And here in chapter 7, it's about to begin. And we see that Jesus is with his brothers, and it's most likely that he's in Nazareth. We know that he's in the region of Galilee. Nazareth is a town that he grew up in. He's probably at his home because his brothers are there. And he's there with his brothers, and his brothers are going to share some advice with him. Now, Matthew's gospel actually tells us that Jesus has four brothers, and he gives us their names, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. 
This makes very clear that the, you know, the Catholic belief that Jesus, uh, Mary was a perpetual virgin that doesn't fit with Scripture. After you know having Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, she then had sexual relations with her husband Joseph, and they had four boys, and they also had daughters as well. And so Jesus is uh, more literally half-brother to these because they have the same mom, but they have different dads, being Jesus' dad is God and their dad is Joseph. Now, before we look at what advice these brothers give to Jesus, I think it's important to note what verse 5 says about them. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So at this point in time, Jesus is in his early 30s. They've spent that much time with him, but they do not believe that he's the Messiah. They do not believe that he is God. And this is important to to recognize as we come into to what they're going to share about Jesus. But I want you to think about something. You know, having Jesus as your brother would have been both good and also bad. I think the good part about having Jesus as your brother would be that he never sinned. So he would always be kind to you. He'd always be loving to you. He'd never take something from you. He'd never say anything rude to you. He'd never be mean to you. He would be the nicest and kindest brother that ever lived. So the good part about being Jesus's brother is he never sinned. And the bad part about being Jesus' brother is he never sinned. I mean, imagine how difficult that would be. You know, the comparisons that would come from the parents, Jesus is the oldest. I mean, how often did his brothers hear, you know, why can't you be more like Jesus? He makes his bed every morning. Why can't you be more like Jesus? He always obeys. Why can't you be more like Jesus? He never disrespects me. Why can't you be more like Jesus? He's always kind. I mean, imagine the amount of comparisons that would come and just the light that would be shined. Here's the perfect sinless brother, literally. Some of you think that your parents treated one of your siblings as perfect, but they surely weren't. But Jesus was. And so that shines the light on the fact that these other siblings are far from perfect and are very sinful. And that would have been difficult to grow up with Jesus as your brother in that way. You know, I have an older brother, four years older than me. And I think I'm not unique in this. You know, when you have a brother, there, there's competition that comes. You want to beat them in things. And I think especially when you're younger, you have this desire to beat your older brother. And Jesus is the oldest. And I'm sure the younger brothers desire to, to beat him in things. And, you know, it, it took years. You know, the thing that my brother and I played the most in was, was basketball. And he would always beat me and beat me. And I just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I remember finally the day that I beat him, and then I always beat him from that point on. And, you know, I was so happy. But before that, there was just great jealousy. And when it came to academics, you know, he got all A's and I just gave up trying to compete in that area. But, you know, there's just things where, you know, imagine. I mean, I don't know if they would have beat Jesus in anything unless he let him win. I mean, the reality is they would constantly have Jesus superior, especially morally, to them. And I would imagine that there was some jealousy within the relationship between his brothers and himself. And perhaps that was even escalated as now the popularity of Jesus has grown. Multitudes of people are coming to see him. He's declaring himself to be the Messiah. They don't believe it, but yet maybe there's even more jealousy that these crowds are coming. And now we have some advice that they give to Jesus. And I want you to keep in mind you know, that they don't believe in him and they're probably jealous of him as we look at the advice that they give. They say, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. 
For no one does anything in secret why he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So the brothers know, hey, the Feast of Tabernacles is about to start. And when any of these three major feasts happen, you know, Israel, especially Judea and Jerusalem, man, the amount of people, there were hundreds of thousands of people that came that didn't normally live there. So they knew, man, the crowds are going to be big. All right, Jesus, so why don't you leave Galilee, which, you know, is kind of the, the small country area, and go down to the big city. Go down to Judea. Go down to Jerusalem. Go down to where the crowds are. And the reason that they tell him to go is so that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, I think the Living Bible does a good job of getting to the heart of what Jesus' brothers are saying to him. The Living Bible translates it like this. You can't be famous when you hide like this. If you're so great, prove it to the world. And this is kind of the heart of Jesus' brothers. You, you claim to be the Messiah. Okay, if you really want to be the famous Messiah, you can't do it up here in Galilee. I mean, you got to go down to Jerusalem. you got to go down to the feast. you got to go down to where the crowds are, and you're going to show them and, and prove who you really are. Now, we don't know if this was said in a sarcastic, ridiculing way because they don't believe that their brother is a Messiah. <laughs> if you're really the Messiah, why don't you go down and show it to everybody? Now, it could have been, we can give them the benefit of the doubt, that it's, you know, kind of brotherly concern, and they're just giving their own human wisdom of, you know what, okay, I know that you claim to be the Messiah. Well, I think the best way for you to prove that would be to go to the feast. And there's plenty of people there for you to declare yourself to. But either way, Jesus' brothers have a worldly, unbelieving view of who he is. And let's see how Jesus responds to their advice in verses 6 through 8. Jesus replied, Now it's not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. Here Jesus gives a response to his brother and he reveals two reasons why he's not going to take their advice and go to the, the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem and declare himself as the Messiah and King of Israel to be worshipped. There's a reason why, two of them, why he's not going to do it. The first reason is because it's not the right time for Jesus to go and reveal himself to the world. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. You know, something important to note about Jesus is that he was completely submitted to the will of God the Father and to the timing of God the Father. You see, God the Father had a specific time, and we'll get there, when Jesus, we call it the triumphal entry, is going to ride into Jerusalem, and at that moment, he is willing to receive the praise for who he is. He's willing to be declared the King of Kings. He's willing to be declared the Messiah. But until that time comes, that specific time that God had ordained, Jesus is not going to push that timetable forward. He's not going to say, hey, you know what, let's just do it now. I'm going to declare all this now. He recognizes, no. There's still six more months. It's not time in God's plan for me to go down and do what you're asking me to do. So the first reason Jesus doesn't take his brother's advice and declare himself as Messiah, it's also the first reason why people struggle with believing who he is. 
And this is, you know, something that we need to recognize. You see, people wanted a Messiah according to their will. They wanted a Messiah according to their timing. But Jesus, we see, he did not work in man's timing or man's will. He worked in God's timing and God's will. You see, the, the, the crowd that they wanted Jesus as a political Messiah, the ones that he fed with five loaves and two fish. Hey, they want him to overthrow Rome. They want him to take care of their physical needs. And you know what? They wanted it in their timing right now. Remember, we're told they were willing to take him by force and make him king. Right now, Jesus, whether you like it or not, we're moving forward with our will and our agenda and our timing. You see, that's how they worked. And Jesus says, no, no. I don't work in your timing. I don't work in your will. I work in the timing and will of the Father. And because of that, Many stop believing in him. Well, wait a second. If you're not going to do what we want in our timing, then we want nothing to do with you. We're not going to follow you. You know, if you're not going to be what we want you to be and do it in the timing that we want you to do it, then forget you. That's why many stop following because Jesus wasn't willing to do things in their will and in their timing. You know, but this is one of the big reasons why many people today have a wrong view of Jesus. You know, then they look to God and they say, you know, I want you to do things in my will. I want you to do things in my timing. And if you're not willing to, well, then I don't want anything to do with you. You know, I've had people tell me Jesus doesn't exist. When I've asked them, well, why do you believe that? They they will say things like, you know what? I prayed and I asked Jesus to give me this job that I applied for and he didn't. Or I prayed and I asked Jesus to heal my loved one right away and he didn't. Or I prayed and I asked Jesus to fix my broken marriage and it needed to happen right now and he didn't. But so he doesn't exist to me. And so I don't believe in him. And what they're ultimately saying is Jesus didn't do my will and my timing and therefore I want nothing to do with him. I don't accept him because of that reality. But what they miss is Jesus doesn't work in our will and our timing. He works in the timing of God and the will of God because that is who he is. So the first reason Jesus doesn't take his brother's advice and go to Judea and declare himself as a Messiah is also the first reason that caused people to have a wrong view of him. Jesus worked in God's timing and God's will, not in man's timing and man's will. The second reason Jesus doesn't take his brother's advice is because he confronts the world of sin and they hate him for it. Notice what Jesus says. Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. Remember, Jesus started this chapter, John, sorry, started this chapter giving us the reason why Jesus hasn't been in Judea. Well, why? Because the religious leaders sought to kill him. Well, what was one of the main reasons why they wanted to kill Jesus? Because he confronted them of their sin. You know, they wanted to be seen as these super spiritual people, so much more spiritual than the rest of the Jews. And Jesus confronted them, revealed to people what they were really like. He confronted their sin and they hated him for it. And so what Jesus is saying to his brothers is, hey, you guys can go to the feast anytime you want. Why? No one hates you. Why doesn't anyone hate you? Because you don't confront them of their sin. That's what I do. Actually, you guys are like the world, and so they're quite happy for you to go to the feast. But when I go, there's a hatred for me because I confront the world and accuse it 
of the evil it does. The second reason Jesus doesn't take his brother's advice and go to Judea is also the second reason that caused people to have a wrong view of him. Jesus confronts the world's sin and they hate him for it. You know, when Jesus confronted and accused people of their sin, many people didn't respond very well to that. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you brought some sin to someone, show them their sin in their life, and experience a bad response. It's somewhat typical of people to, to not respond very well with that. And instead of accepting what Jesus said, accepting the reality that they're sinful, asking Jesus, well, what can we do? How do we deal with this sin? Instead, they would deny it. How dare you say that about me? Who do you think you are type of mindset? You know, their pride would just come. And instead of accepting what Jesus is revealing, they reject Jesus so they don't have to deal with the things that he's saying about their sin. You know, this is another one of the reasons why many people today have a wrong view of Jesus. We're told the Holy Spirit's job is to convict people of sin, of righteousness, and God's judgment. One of the roles of us as believers is to share the gospel. And part of the gospel news is the bad news that people are sinners. And so when the Holy Spirit convicts of sin or a believer convicts someone of sin, you know, there are many people who do not respond very well to that. You know, the fact that you're a sinner is meant, you, meant to lead you to the reality that you need a savior. You're sinful and your sin has brought the judgment of God on you. That's the bad news, and it points you to the fact, well, what can I do? Well, you need someone to save you. And Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who died for your sin. He's the one who can help you be forgiven and, and freed from it. But when you deny you're a sinner, and you don't want to properly deal with the sin that Jesus says is wrong, you know, typically you're going to deny Jesus' claim that what you're doing is sinful. When Jesus confronts you, you're going to either believe in Him and love Him because of what He's done to pay for your sin, or... You're going to reject him and hate him for confronting you with your sin. Sadly, we see many people in the world, they're rejecting Jesus, they hate Jesus because he confronts them of the sin that's in their life. And because of it, they have a wrong view of him. Now, as representatives, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we are called to proclaim the gospel to this world that does not like to hear the first part of the gospel. Oh, if Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. They don't have a problem with hearing that part, but the fact that you're a sinner, and that's why you need what Jesus did on the cross. You're a sinner, and it brings the judgment of God. They don't want to hear that message, but we're called to give it. And so don't be surprised. Jesus was rejected by his own brothers. Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders. Jesus was hated by many, and he was perfect. He is God in flesh, and still the world hated him. So don't be surprised when you stand for truth, when you stand for Jesus, when you declare who he is and when you declare who people are sinful, that many hate you because of it. And ultimately, they're not hating you. They're hating the one that you represent. They're hating the one that you were declaring, Jesus Christ. And they're hating the truth of what they are, sinful. Jesus said this in John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is bringing up a reality. Hey, the world hated me. I'm perfect. If you start following me, you got to expect something. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. 
You know, the day that you give your life to Jesus, now it's a change. You're a new creation. And guess what? You're no longer living the life that you used to. You're no longer living for the things of the world. You now start living for Jesus. And when the world starts to recognize that reality, there's a change in the way that they see you, a change in the way that they view you. Man, I love to party with you. I love to do these things with you when you were like me. But now you're this Jesus follower. And not only do I not like you anymore, it might even lead to the fact that I hate you because you reveal sin in my life. You're this light that shines in the what you live for and who you stand for. And it just reveals in my life even more so where I'm at. And I don't want you around me. So Jesus doesn't take his brother's advice to go to the feast and proclaim himself as his Messiah, but he is going to go to the feast. But he's going to go in a different way with a different motive than what they're asking him to do. Notice what he does in verses 9 and 10. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So Jesus gives them the reasons why he's not going to go. And he says, you know what? You guys go ahead. Yeah, I'm not going with you. And then after they leave and go, Jesus goes to the feast, but not in the way in which his brothers told him to do it. He didn't go openly saying, hey, look who I am. Everybody declare me as the king right now. That was for a later date. He didn't go openly like that. Instead, we're told he went secretly in the sense of you know, more incognito. He's not there to kind of declare these things yet. He's not taking his you know, brother's advice in that way because that's not the timing that God had for him. So Jesus' brothers, they have this worldly, unbelieving view of him. They give him this bad, worldly advice. Jesus gives them two reasons why he's not going to take it. Because he does things in God's will and timing, not man's will and man's timing. And because when he confronts the world's sin, they hate him for it. Well, now we're going to see the wrong view the religious leaders had concerning Jesus. Verses 11 through 13. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So we're told that the Jews are seeking Jesus at the feast, and they're asking people, hey, where is Jesus? Now remember, the last time that these guys have seen Jesus was at a previous feast, the Feast of Passover. And they knew that, hey, it's very likely, since most of the men would do all they could to get to these feasts, that now that it's the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is probably going to be here. They're looking for him. Why? What's their desire? What are they seeking to do? Well, John already started the chapter with what they want. They want to kill him. Where's Jesus? Well, we got a plan for him. Well, we want to know where he is. And they can't find him. They're going to find him later on in the chapter. But right now, they're, they're seeking him. You know, the religious leaders... They have a different view than the brothers because their view is a hostile view of Jesus and they want to kill him. And notice how they try to influence how other people viewed Jesus. They weren't just content with their own hostile view. They weren't just content with their own desire to destroy Jesus. They wanted to influence and impact the way in which everyone viewed Jesus. And notice what we're told. No one spoke openly. Why? For fear of the Jews. The religious leaders try to influence people. Hey, we don't want anybody talking about Jesus. And now there are people debating about Jesus, whether he was good or bad, but no one spoke openly about Jesus. Why? For fear of the Jews. Well, what does this tell us? 
that the religious leaders, they have established, hey, we aren't going to allow anyone to speak about Jesus. We're putting a gag order here. Anyone who talks about Jesus, there are going to be severe consequences, and that's why they're fearing speaking about him, because the religious leaders are saying, hey, I don't want you talking about this man. Good or bad, we don't want anybody saying anything about Jesus, and there's going to be consequences if you do. Later on in John, we're going to reveal that the consequences that they came up with was you speak about Jesus, you put your trust in him, that he's the Messiah, we will excommunicate you from the synagogue. We will excommunicate you from ultimately Jewish life. You will be banned, which was a huge deal. That's the consequence that they're ultimately bringing against anyone who would speak about them. The third reason that caused people to have a wrong view about Jesus is the religious leaders tried to stop people from speaking about Jesus. Now, this is a very common response that we see in our world today from those who are hostile to Jesus, from those who want to destroy anything that connects to him and anyone that would dare put their trust in him. They want to silence people from speaking about Jesus. They want to remove Jesus from as many places as they can. Because in their mindset, if Jesus isn't spoken of, then he won't be believed and he won't be followed. And sadly, the people who are hostile to Jesus in our culture, you know, they've been very effective in silencing people from standing up and speaking about Jesus Christ. And they've been very effective in removing Jesus and biblical values from many public places, from businesses. And if you dare stand up for biblical values, you dare stand up for Jesus, man, we're going to sue you. We're going to come against you. We're going to do everything we can to shut you up and keep you from speaking about and following especially publicly, Jesus Christ. You know what? As our culture continues to do this, we are suffering the consequences of this deliberate, this has been many, many decades that this has been happening, and the consequences are really growing. When we remove Jesus from our schools and public life, we're seeing the negative things that that has brought I think an important question to ask is, what is it? Why are these religious leaders so threatened by Jesus? Why is it they want to shut everybody up? Why is it they're not willing for people to talk about him? What is it that that threatens them so much about Jesus? Well, there's a few things. Jesus threatened their control and influence over the people, especially as Jesus regularly confronted them in front of the people. You know, the people looked at them and thought, oh, you guys are so spiritual and you guys can do no wrong and you guys are so amazing and we're way down here and and you're so, you know, spiritual and godly and up here and, and then Jesus would confront them. And all of a sudden that control and that influence started to diminish. Jesus threatened their comfortable way of life. You see, because of their control and influence over the people, that they, they gained quite a lot. A lot of power, a lot of prestige, and even a lot of wealth. And their comfortable way of life was starting to be threatened. Jesus threatened their man-made traditions, and that's the thing that helped them keep control over the people. Especially when Jesus purposely breaks many of their man-made traditions to prove to them and show to them, this is not what God wanted, and this is not what God has established. And so I have no problem breaking your man-made tradition, because it's not a tradition and not a law of God. So Jesus threatened what they were living for. They didn't like him. But you know what? As Jesus threatened what they were living for, he also gave them something far greater to live for. 
And this was the, the, the reality for them is say, yeah, what you are pursuing and what you think is holy and what you think saves you, that's all nonsense. That's not all. That's not how it is. You know what? This is the truth. And you know what? I'm going to give you something to live for that's far better. I'm going to give you something to live for that's going to give you something far better. But they were threatened. Jesus threatened what they were living for. And they became hostile to him. They rejected him. I think ultimately because they were fearing losing what they had. I fear losing control. I fear losing my power. I fear losing my influence. I fear losing my comfortable life. Man, if I believe in Jesus, that's going to be gone. This is another one of the main reasons why people choose to reject Jesus today. They reject him because they focus on what they'll have to give up and lose if they put their trust in Jesus instead of focusing on what they will gain if they trust in Jesus. Yeah, they think, if I put my trust in Jesus, I'm going to have to give up this sinful relationship. If I put my trust in Jesus, I'm going to have to give up this sinful pleasure. If I put my trust in Jesus, this, this, this influence or this power or this control that right now I have presently over people, that's going to be gone. If I put my trust in Jesus, I'm going to lose this. I'm going to lose that. And so because of that, I don't want to believe in him. Because of that, I don't want to trust him. I want to keep these things. I want to hold on to these things. I like these things. I want to pursue these things. But the reality is, what you gain in putting your trust in Jesus is a million times better than what you lose. A million times better than anything you're going to have to give up. You can look at all the sinful things that you love, all the relationships that you're a part of. You know what? None of that compares to what you gain in Christ, your forgiveness of sins, your eternal life in heaven, the relationship you have with God. Now, the only way the religious leaders could be effective in stopping people from speaking about Jesus is if those people feared them. If they didn't fear them, then they just keep talking. That's the only way that this would work. Those people had to fear the religious leaders and the consequences they could bring in order to keep people silent about Jesus. Notice we're told, however, no one spoke openly of Jesus for fear of the Jews. No one's willing to speak openly about Jesus because they were afraid of the religious leaders and what they would do to them. The fourth reason that caused people to have a wrong view about Jesus is people feared the religious leaders. I think this is one of the biggest reasons why people have a wrong view of Jesus. They're afraid of what other people will think if they make a choice to believe in him. They're afraid of what other people would say or what other people would do if they even just had a conversation with someone about Jesus, especially if they were to put their trust in Jesus. What are people going to think of me? What's my family going to think of me? What are my friends going to think of me? You know, there's this fear of the world and people that keeps them from coming to a right view of Jesus, that keeps them in that wrong view and that rejection of Jesus because they're afraid of what people might think of them, might say to them, might do to them. You know, I've had several conversations with people just one-on-one, -on -one, talking with them about Jesus, and they're super interested, and they're open, and they're asking questions. And typically, this was in a more public forum, like a park or something, and all of a sudden, some of their friends come over to where we're talking. And this person who was super open and asking questions, they don't want to talk anymore. Oh, I wasn't talking about Jesus. What are you talking about? They're afraid of what their friends are going to think. Well, why are you talking to this guy? This guy's weirdo at the park here telling people about Jesus. What are you doing talking to him? Why do you want to have this conversation about Jesus? And they just stop. 
Like they were never interested. Like they didn't actually ask these questions and want the answers. They stopped for fear of what their friends would think of them. You know, when Jenny and I were in Scotland, we actually had a, a guy from China fully grasp the gospel in tears, recognizing what Jesus did, blown away, first time he ever heard about Jesus, first time he ever heard the gospel. And why he was so full of tears was not because of gratitude and the fact that he was going to get saved, was because he said, you know what, I could never put my trust in Jesus because I'm the oldest son and it's my responsibility to continue on the family religious belief system, which was Buddhism. So he wouldn't do it. Fully recognizing it, fully understanding, I reject Jesus, I go to hell, and in tears saying, I couldn't do that because of the pressure of what my family would say. I would dishonor them, and I can't imagine you know, the, the, what they would do as the oldest son coming back to China and letting them know, I'm no longer Buddhist, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so he wouldn't do it. Such a sad reality. The final group that has a wrong view of Jesus is the crowd. We're told in verse 12, And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. So the crowd has two opposing views. One's a positive view. One's a, a negative view. Some said Jesus is a good man. Others say Jesus deceives the people. Well, those that say that Jesus is a deceiver, that he's a liar, well, that was definitely a wrong view that they had of Jesus. But you know what? I can understand why many of them would come to that conclusion. Because Jesus has made some pretty bold and audacious claims. And I think, you know, we see this in the light of who Jesus is. We read this starting with the recognition, Jesus is God. And so this claim that he's God, this claim that you should worship him, this claim that he came from heaven, this claim that he's going to judge the world, we see that in light of who he is, and they don't seem so audacious anymore. They don't seem so bold anymore because, well, yeah, he's God. He can say these things. But imagine that being said, and you don't know who this person is. You know, how would you respond if you heard someone say that? I want you to think this morning, if after the service, you know, you came up, a new person, you know, you've never met them before, you come and you introduce yourself to them, and after they tell you that you're their name, they say, oh yeah, by the way, I'm God. What would be your thought process right there? I'm sure maybe you take a step back, you're like, kind of thinking, maybe this person's a little crazy. And then they go on and say, you know those worship songs that we sang? You should be singing them to me, because I'm God. And once again, you're probably like, I need some help here. You know, this guy needs maybe a, a padded room. What's going on? Hey, you know what? You're a sinner. And I'm going to judge you for eternity for your sins. I mean, if you heard someone say that, I mean, what would your conclusion be like? Oh, wow, I can't believe God's here. You know, typically we would come to this conclusion if you're crazy or you're just a liar. And that's what many of the people thought when Jesus made these claims. The only way that these claims could actually hold water, be true, is if he was who he claimed to be, and we know that to be the case. Now, there was another group, but you know what? You look at what they say, and you probably think, well, at least they had the right answer. Well, you know what? No, they didn't. They say that Jesus was a good man. The, root, the view was wrong, not because Jesus wasn't good, but because it wasn't connected with Jesus being God. All they saw was, Jesus, you're good. Oh, you're not God. We don't believe that. You're not the Messiah. We don't believe that. But we believe you're good. But here's the problem. 
There's no way Jesus can be good if He's not God. Why? Because of what He just declared. He said, I'm God. He said, I should be worshipped. He said, I've come down from heaven. He said, I'm going to judge the world. Well, if He's not God, He's not good. He's a liar. He's making some audacious, lying, deceitful claims that you should believe in Me. You should trust in Me. I'm God. If He's not then from that time to now, he's deceived more people than anyone ever has. The greatest liar to ever live. So to say Jesus is good, but not God, you can't do that. Well, 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 maybe he didn't know any better. Okay, fine, he's not a liar. He's just crazy. He thought he was God, but he was delusional. He was a lunatic. He should have been put up in a psych ward. I mean, here's a guy who believed something that wasn't true. But guess what? We wouldn't call that person good either. So he's either a liar or he's crazy, but if he's not God, we can't conclude he's good. Josh McDowell, an apologist, he put it this way. He says either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. You can't say he's good and not Lord. Because if he's good, he has to be Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. So this group is saying Jesus is good, but they weren't concluding that he is God. So once again, It was wrong. You know what? When I talk with people, this is the most common response I get. Jesus was a good man. Yeah, that's typically what you hear. Most people's view of Jesus is positive but wrong. Oh, he was good. Really? And then you can kind of bring him to this reality of, well, look at what he said about himself. Do you believe it? No. Okay. Do you still think he's good? (laughs) But but this is the, the way in which so many conclude their thoughts about Jesus. The only way Jesus can be What he claimed to be is if he truly was God. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, some people, they just kind of have the idea of, what does it matter? You come to him, who's Jesus? I don't care. What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with my life? Why does me understanding the answer to that question have any pertinence to me at all? Because your eternal life is in the balance. Your view of Jesus will impact your eternity. Your view of Jesus is going to impact whether or not your sins are forgiven, whether or not you can spend eternity with God in heaven, or whether or not you'll spend eternity separated from God in hell. It all comes back to who is Jesus and having the right answer to that. Because everyone who has the wrong answer to that question is going to be judged by God for all eternity. I mean, it's the most important question there is to answer. And so when I come across people who have that kind of you know, dismissive attitude, it's so sad because you recognize, man, this is the most important thing for you to ever understand and you don't even care. You're not even willing to give it your thoughts. You're not willing to give it your time. The right view of Jesus is the most important view there is. And that view is that Jesus is God. And that He came as a man. He lived a sinless life, something that none of us could do. But it didn't end there. Then He went to the cross and He paid for our sin and took the judgment of God upon Himself that you and I deserve. He paid that price so that we could escape God's judgment. But you know what? Three days later, He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And the Bible tells us if we'll put our trust in Him and who He is, God, and what He's done, died for our sin, rose from the dead, that we will be forgiven of our sin, that we will have a relationship with Him, that we can be confident in our eternity, that it will be with Him in heaven. 
But he also says, that's the only way. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way for this to happen. And that's why this question is so vital. Who is Jesus? Because you get that one wrong and your eternity will be influenced and impacted. You know, we live in a culture where the majority of people have a wrong view of Jesus. And the consequence of that for them is they don't get a right view of Jesus before they die. They're going to go to hell. And that's why it's so important for you and I who have a right view of Jesus to go out and tell this world who He is. We've been given that commission by God. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. God knows so many don't know it. So many's eternity are on the line and they need to hear the news of who Jesus is. They need to hear the message of the gospel. And I've called my followers who already know it to go out and proclaim it. That's our role. That's our job as ambassadors, as followers of Jesus, to let this world know who He is, understanding the ramifications and the importance of understanding that question. God wants those of us who know Jesus to reach those who don't. You know, that's the most important thing that we could ever share with someone. The Gospel. When we think of all sorts of things that we engage in conversation and think are important and speak about, man, the most important thing that we could ever share with someone is who Jesus is, what He has done, and the reality that if they accept Him, their life for all eternity will be changed. I mentioned at the beginning, this is applicable to those of us who know Him because we go and we're called to go out and share that message, but it's applicable if you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're, you'll connect with one of these groups that you've rejected Jesus for whatever reason. Maybe, you know, he didn't do your will and your timing, or, or perhaps he confronts you with your sin and you didn't like that. You didn't respond well to that. Well, if that's you this morning, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to put your trust in Jesus, to accept him for who he is, that he is God, that he loves you enough, that he sacrificed himself for your sin, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And if you will put your trust in Him, ask Him to forgive you of your sin, He will do that for you. Let's pray.